On a cold winter night in January 2020, I was walking through a supermarket parking lot, and I saw there on the ground next to a puddle a beautiful picture of a tropical fish. I bent down to pick it up. It turned out to be the label from a DVD. The DVD was a home aquarium, in HD, no less, from 2010. You would put the DVD into your DVD player and watch fish swim back and forth and back and forth. And standing there in the cold, wondering how a 10-year-old DVD label was sitting in a parking lot, I remembered that in 1987, I launched the first aquarium on VHS. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about tropical fish, but mostly invention. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. We need your help. Our culture needs your help. Marketing. Marketing is the act of making things better by making better things. Marketing is what we call it when you bring your work to the world in a way the world can engage with it. And the marketing seminar is back. It's back for another session with more than 10,000 alumni so far. It is the most successful, most effective workshop of its kind. Check out themarketingseminar.com for more details. We would love to have you join us. Yes, we all know that the digital aquarium changed the world. That around the world, millions and millions of people right now are trying to tear themselves away from their TV sets, their flat-screen, 4K, expensive TV sets where they are watching tropical fish swim back and forth in a coral reef. And they have me to thank for it. Sort of. On to another invention. In 1989, there was a problem in the marketplace. The problem was this. Tons of kids were playing Nintendo games. And lots of kids didn't want to spend the time to read a manual or a hint book to figure out how to win the game. So I came up with the great idea of filming videotapes, just taking the output from a Nintendo going straight into a Super VHS recorder and recording people winning the video game. We then created the Score More Points series of home videos. It featured, of course, Skip Rogers, world video game champion, who I invented, and the tapes went on to sell just a few copies. This is the hottest game of the year, as far as Skip Rogers is concerned. You get to be any wrestler you want. I'm Hulk in this round. Here's a flying drop kick. Well, we all know what happened 15 years later. Amazon bought Twitch for more than a billion dollars. Yes, in addition to inventing the home aquarium that runs on a TV set, I also invented what became Twitch. Yep, we're on a roll. Soon after Apple launched the iPod, it occurred to me that there was a chance to build a device that would use radio waves to broadcast the music from your iPod across your room to your speakers. 
As we all know, this idea eventually got picked up and turned into the MacSense HomePod. I have one in my office. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And then years later became Sonos, a billion-dollar company with more than 1,000 employees that is now having its intellectual property stolen relentlessly by Google. Another innovation that I started, perhaps, but had little to do with. One more tech innovation from the 1980s. The Mac could be hooked up to a dot matrix printer, the cheap precursor to a laser printer. And then if you wanted to, you could send something across the country using a fax machine. For those of you who haven't touched one in a while, a fax machine works like a scanner and a printer connected by a really long phone wire in between. And my idea was to write some software and some hardware for the Mac so that instead of printing to your printer, you could print to any fax machine in the world straight from your screen. Apple didn't have something like that. So my plan was to build one, a prototype, to prove that it could work. And then go get meetings with fancy companies, software and hardware, that wanted to support the Mac. License them our brilliant idea and just sit back, let them do the hard work and watch the royalties roll in. So my partner Dan and I built one. It fit inside a very small suitcase, bigger than a briefcase, and I would take it to these meetings. I was really good at getting the meetings. And we'd go to the meetings and I'd open the thing up and I'd wire it up and I'd go to send a fax. But the thing is, fax machines are analog, not so much digital, at least they were then. So almost every single time, this device, which worked great in our lab, didn't work after I'd gotten off the plane in San Francisco or Dallas. One last shot. We bought a booth at the famous Macworld Expo. We set up our prototype, working this time, and waited for the hordes of buyers to come by. Well, on the very first day, Two analysts from Apple Computer came by. They spent a half an hour looking at our device. They confessed to us that they had certainly been talking about this idea at HQ, but it was just an idea. That afternoon, Apple had a press conference. They announced that even though we had something called a Max Fax, their new thing, a Mac Fax, would be shipping in just three months for half the price we were claiming ours was going to ship for. Well, I'm sure you guessed it. It was more than a year later before Apple finally came out with theirs. But by that point, we were long gone, exhausted by the journey. It could be that you're sensing a pattern here, and the pattern is pretty straightforward. Inventing stuff isn't particularly difficult if you are willing to invent a lot of things that don't work and you're working at a time of structural shift, in this case, the media landscape, along with technology. And third, and most of all, you don't then commit to spending the time to actually building the thing and sticking with it all the way to the point where it's quite valuable. Years ago, when I worked at Spinnaker Software, I helped develop a line of computer games based on science fiction novels. I got to work with Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke. And going down the list of authors I really admired, Michael Crichton was next, 
And then I called up Harry Harrison. Harry Harrison wrote The Stainless Steel Rat, but he's most famous for writing the book that inspired the movie Soylent Green. Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson, Chuck Connors, Lee Taylor Young, Brock Peters, Paula Kelly, and Joseph Cotton fight for survival and try to solve the most bizarre riddle ever to face mankind. The search for the secret of Soylent Green. You will find out why Soylent Green means life. You will find out why Soylent Green means death. We gotta stop him! What is the secret of Soylent Green? So I call up Harry, and like all science fiction authors of the day, except for perhaps Michael Crichton, he was hard up for cash and was eager to license us the rights to one or more of his titles. So we got together, and for some reason he picked a rotating restaurant. Rotating restaurants don't have very much to recommend them, particularly if the person you're with is drinking shots of tequila. So Harry, on his fifth shot, turns to me and quite seriously says, you know, I'm not speaking to Michael Crichton. And I said, oh, really? Well, he's a pretty nice guy. What's the problem? He said, well, here's what happened. I wrote an entire science fiction novel about a virus that comes from outer space and takes over the Earth. And as I finished the last page and was about to mail it to my publisher, I read a book called The Andromeda Strain, which had just become a bestseller. And Harry turned beet red, and he said, the guy pre-stole my idea thus making his book worthless. He was punishing Crichton by not speaking to him. Crichton, of course, had no idea any of this had occurred. The point is that writing that book, getting all the way to the end, having your agent, Lynn Nesbitt, sell it to a big-time publisher, and then promoting it and getting all the way over the finish line, that is just as hard as thinking of an idea for a virus that comes from outer space and takes over the Earth. There are pre-steals everywhere we look. And people who have successfully taken an idea and actually done something with it. So back to the aquarium. In 1986, there were airline magazines. They were thicker than they are now. They did not have enough ads. And if you had some gumption, you could call one of them up and offer to trade for an ad in the magazine. In my case, the aquarium tape, there was also a fireplace tape, cost $49. And I call up the sales rep at American Airlines Magazine, and I say, here's the deal. I'll pay you 20 bucks for every one of the tapes I sell. I'll give you a full-page ad, run it if you have space, and you'll make maybe a lot of money. So I run the ad, and I don't get any orders. I don't get any orders. And I had made myself a commitment that if I got more than 12 orders, I would go ahead and actually make the product. Well, I got eight orders. After getting eight orders, I looked at my commitment that I needed 12 to get out the high-def camera and start filming fish, and I sent all eight of the people their money back along with a nice little gift. Well, you guessed what happened. The next time I went to the mailbox to check, there were seven more orders, and so it went. I didn't have the guts to follow through. It was enough for me to say that I invented the aquarium on videotape. But it wasn't enough to change the culture. It wasn't enough to go down the rocky road between here 
and there. The people who sold Twitch for all of those zeros deserve what they got. Because the hard part wasn't saying, let's put a video game on videotape. The hard part was showing up and showing up and showing up of solving 10,000 little problems, some of them really big problems, as opposed to simply saying, I came up with an idea and now we're done. This is why it's ludicrous when we see lawsuits where people who had an idea in their basement claim that some big shot organization stole their idea. That's not likely. I truly believe that Google stole the ideas and patents behind Sonos because Sonos had done the work for decades of figuring out the best way to make the thing work. But no, if you send a five-page proposal to someone you know whose brother-in-law's cousin is a screenwriter, they're not going to steal your idea and make it into a movie. They have more ideas than they know what to do with. That's not the hard part. The hard part is going to the meetings and staring down the skeptics. The hard part is figuring out how to violate the laws of physics that are laws until you figure out how to bend them enough that you can make the thing you're building actually work. So yes, I still love to invent stuff. And for fun, I pretend that people have pre-stolen my ideas. But deep down, what I know is this. Ideas that spread win. If you're really, really good and really fortunate, one of your ideas will get pre-stolen by somebody and go into the world and change things without you having to break a sweat. So if you've got an idea, fantastic. Write it down. But even better, decide to commit years of your life, drip by drip, day by day, to actually changing the culture. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode or anything else, drop me a note by visiting akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is Chal from the Philippines. I just wanted to ask about being a Jack or Jane of all trains. Uh, it seems to be that audiences, people prefer and notice and listen to people who are focused with one particular thing, for example, sports, fashion, arts, so on and so forth, as opposed to people who do all sorts of things. So where do people 
who are Jack and Jane of all trades go or what should they do to reconcile this joy of learning all sorts of different things without actually excelling in them or being great and heard and known for it. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. You've been such an inspiration, especially during these times. Thank you. You're highlighting a real pressure in our culture. On one hand, the professionals we choose, the people we talk about, the folks that we follow or listen to are often at the extreme. They are seen as the best, as singular, as idiosyncratic, as peculiar, as doing something extraordinary at the edges. Because after all, if you needed a lawyer or a surgeon or a coach or an advisor or an investor or even a pizziolo to make you dinner, why wouldn't you pick the best one? On the other hand, years and years of schooling and cultural indoctrination pushes us to fit in, to do what we're told, to sand off the edges, and to be well-rounded. We often prefer to have straight B pluses than one A and a bunch of Ds. We push kids to work on their Ds, and we ignore the fact that they had one A. And so, your point about Jack or Jane of all trades, this is somebody who's pretty good at a lot of things. How then to show up in the marketplace of ideas? How then to show up in the gig economy if you're pretty good at a bunch of things? Well, there are a few choices. The first one is to realize that being pretty good at a bunch of things is in itself an extraordinary edge case of a skill. The Swiss Army knife is worth talking about precisely because most knives don't also come with a can opener. The Swiss Army knife should not go head-to-head against the chef's knife to work in a fancy restaurant kitchen. But if you can only carry one thing in your pocket, carrying a chef's knife is probably not the right answer. So what that means is you have to get very good at being pretty good at a lot of things. You have to get very good at context switching without a hassle. That what it means to be a handy person is that your answer to almost every question is no problem. It means that you carry with you the tools of your trade, that you have figured out how to have what you need to do pretty good work on a moment's notice because an expert is more brittle than you. You, by being expert at a lot of things, are flexible. And the second alternative is to seek out gigs where it's not necessary to be an expert. It's necessary to be steady, to be resilient, to be the flexible, enthusiastic, positive, easy-to-work-with person, because you can become the best in the world at that. What's not available is to say, I'm three and a half stars at 40 things. I come in fourth place in every ranking. Please pick me, because I really need the gig, because no one's going to pick you for that reason. But what we can do is lean into the fact that we're good at a lot of things. And also a correction Free climbing and free soloing are apparently different things. Free climbing means climbing without using any aids to move up, but you've got ropes to avoid falling down, whereas free soloing is just plain nuts. Thanks for the correction. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker 
at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.